Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever had a job or a business that included problems and issues to deal with? Hey, you know, problems come with the territory. The question is, did you get a paycheck? Most likely. So you were compensated in return for dealing with the problems and the issues. Have you ever been sick? Are you well most of the time and sick just once in a while? Have you ever had to deal with a vehicle that broke down while you were driving? Did that same vehicle run reliably 99.99% of the time? Do you have a family member who causes you to ask the question, can this person really be a member of my family? Do you have family members who you are very fond of, proud of, loved ones that you would do almost anything for? So let us review. We have good and bad, but the good far exceeds the bad. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, certainly has blessed us with goodness. Let us thank Him for the goodness in our lives. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unto singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love. joy to the age just to sing of his love for me singing how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my Savior's love for me everybody singing
us bow for our opening prayer. Heavenly Father, Holy God, we lift our thoughts to you in praise and our words. We come to you as we are, called to be saints, but so often less than our calling. Yet it is our desire that your Holy Spirit guides us, not just in this place, but wherever our steps take us. We step forward with your gracious presence alongside us, knowing that each one of us are blessed with something special to share. We pray that you would stir our hearts, O Lord. May we not be complacent. May our obedience to your word be a joy, not a burden. We desire to be more fully your people. So we look to you and to Jesus, our example for living. We give you our praise, and we long for more of you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, remembering the words he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Americans have a lot of slogans that resonate in a way that makes it difficult for people to understand the word grace. I have a few examples. There is no free lunch. You get what you deserve. You want money? Go to work. You want learn? Or you want love? Earn it. Do unto others before they do it unto you. By all means, give others what they deserve but not a penny more. Hmm. Hard work and independence are, indeed, the American way. If you want something to happen, you got to make it happen. However, in addition to our work, th our work ethic, our cultural bias has carried over to develop a sort of do-it-yourself approach to spirituality. But scripture insists on God's initiative in the work of salvation. By grace, you are saved. According to God's word, our spirituality starts with God. It doesn't start with us. But somehow, in our society, virtue has become a skill that can be attained, like good handwriting. Just take some practice. We focus on overcoming our weaknesses and getting rid of our hang-ups. We focus on reaching Christian maturity. Now, I know you've heard me preach before on the importance, the need for spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is a wonderful goal. The problem is that many Christians live as if personal discipline and self-denial alone 
will mold them into what God wants them to be. Too often, the emphasis is on what I do, not on what God does. We look at God as if he's an old, benign guy, a spectator, sitting up there on the bleachers far away, who cheers when we show up to have some quiet time in the morning or when we attempt to do an act of kindness. But sooner or later, we are all confronted by the painful truth of our inadequacy and our insufficiency. Once your bootstraps are cut, you discover that you can't add a single inch to your spiritual stature. That this realization can trigger a long season of discontent within you. It may even grow into subtle despair or pessimism or into an unhappy boredom with the ordinariness of life as you move through your daily routine over and over again. Secretly, you admit that the call of Jesus is too demanding and that surrender to the Holy Spirit is beyond your reach. So you start acting like everybody else. Life takes on a joyless, empty quality. You, became, or you become afraid to live and afraid to love. Something has gone radically wrong. Trying to earn attaboy accolades from God while holding, holding on to pettiness and wallowing in guilt doesn't sit well with God. Why? Because it denies the gospel of grace. The great reformers during the Reformation, like John Wycliffe and Martin Luther, wrestled with a core question. How can the gospel of Christ be called good news? At that time, most theologians believed that God is a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge that he rewards the good and punishes the bad. It wasn't a new belief. It was the orthodox belief of the established church. The theologians rejected the gospel as being good news. They said, how can the revelation of God through Jesus Christ be accurately called news? In their minds, the Old Testament carried the same theme. Be good or be punished. Reward the good, punish the bad. That theme hung like a dark cloud over the church for centuries. And we know what happened next. The reformers during the Reformation read the scriptures much to the displeasure of the established church. They read verses like Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And the light came on. They finally understood. After centuries of futility in a religious world that taught the way to God was through self-righteousness and through the clergy, they at last understood that God made sinners righteous 
through the forgiveness of sins. It was a stunning revelation. Thousands upon thousands of people died when this truth became elevated to the masses. It was as, it was as if heaven had been opened to the masses. Let's read Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. It provides a wonderful glimpse into the gospel of grace. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is revelation as bright as the morning sun. Jesus comes for the sinners. He came for the outcast. He came for those who were caught up in the sordid choices and failed dreams, their failed dreams. And today, Jesus still comes for street people and for superstars as well. He comes for farmers, hookers, addicts, AIDS victims, corporate executives, mechanics, engineers. He even comes for IRS agents and used car salesmen. <laughs> he comes for them, and he even dines with them. And he knows that his table fellowship with sinners will raise the eyebrows of the religious bureaucrats who wear their robes and their trinkets they're trinkets of authority, all the while condemning truth and rejecting the gospel of grace. Jesus, who forgave the sins of the paralytic, proclaimed an invitation to sinners, not to the self-righteous. The kingdom of God is not a walled-off subdivision for those who feel they are worthy. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom for the self-righteous with snobbish rules about who can live close by. The kingdom of God is filled by sinners invited by Jesus to sit with him around a banquet table. God's kingdom is not a museum for saints. Rather, it's a hospital for sinners. So we can stop fooling ourselves. As a sinner who has been redeemed, I acknowledge that sometimes I become unloving and irritable and angry at those who are closest to me. But I don't have to apply, I don't have to apply spiritual cosmetics to make myself presentable to God. I can accept ownership of what I am, a sinner in need of God's grace someone who God wants to pour his love into through his Holy Spirit. When the gospel of grace 
takes hold of us, then something is radically right. We stop fooling ourselves and begin living in truth and reality. We become honest. We admit that we are a bundle of opposites. When I'm honest about myself, I admit that I believe and I doubt. Sometimes I hope. Sometimes I get discouraged. I can love someone deeply, but I can also feel resentment. I feel guilty about feeling guilty. I am trusting and I'm suspicious. The gospel of grace smashes the two-class concept of religion into pieces. Those who are good enough and those who aren't. Grace proclaims the awesome truth that everything is a gift. All that is good is not ours by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God who alone initiated forgiveness. It's true that we work hard. Some of us have attained hard-earned university degrees and good salaries. Some of us have harvested fruit and vegetables from the gardens we've planted. Some of us have earned a good night's sleep for working so hard during the day. But this is all possible only because we have been given so much. God has given us life itself. He's given us eyes to see and hands to feel, to touch, a mind to create and shape ideas, and a heart that beats with love. And we have been given a God-sized hunger in our souls that longs to know God. And we were given Messiah Jesus in the flesh. And then the Holy Spirit gives us power to believe when others deny, to hope when others despair, to love when others hurt. These are gifts. They are not rewards for our faithfulness or for our generous disposition or for our pious prayer life. They're, they were given to us. The gospel of grace tells us that we are all equal unentitled. We are God's creation sitting before the door of God's mercy. And if you think about it, the greater part of God's work in the world comes or goes unnoticed by the world. A few people have become famous or widely known for their ministries, but the vast majority of God's saving activity in this world is not known outside of a local community. In our age of publicity, people tend to consider something more important the more it's talked about. It's sort of like the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18 who asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. He wanted to be in the spotlight. It's no coincidence, I think, that Luke preceded that passage with the teaching of Jesus about children. Children are a direct contrast to the rich ruler because children have done nothing to merit anything. 
The point Jesus made is that we can do nothing to inherit God's kingdom. We must simply receive it like children. They are, in effect, our model, simply because they have no claim in heaven. If they receive anything, it can only be as a gift. Suppose you were to ask a thousand Americans to define faith today. I would be willing to bet that the majority would define faith as belief in the existence of God. But in the early days of our country, faith was not believing that God existed. Almost everyone took that for granted. Faith was something else. Faith had to do with one's relationship with God. Faith was a personal trust in God. There's a big difference between, that believing, between believing that God exists and trusting in God. Believing that God exists is simply a piece of information, a piece of data in your mind. But trusting in God is a matter of the heart. Belief in the existence of God will not change you. But trusting in God will intrinsically change you. Never mind that you may be disillusioned with life or stuck in a job that you desperately want to get out of. Never mind that the fire in your belly is beginning to grow cold or, you, or that you feel insecure or in inadequate or that you no longer look like you're 25 years old or that you're losing your hair. None of those things matter in the end because grace has called you out. You are accepted just as you are. Paul wrote that the Lord said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. That was a bit of a paraphrase. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Whatever your weaknesses are, you do not need to lower your eyes in shame. You don't need to hide your flaws. Jesus didn't come for the super spiritual. He came for the wobbly and the weak need. Those who know they don't have it all together. And those who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. Jesus sat down at the table with anyone who was willing to be present. He provides consideration, not condemnation. He provides amazing grace instead of universal disgrace. Jesus provides a new chance in life. Our churches consist of men and women who sometimes sin. Any church that doesn't accept this truth implicitly rejects the gospel of grace. There is not a single sin or failing that someone in our churches in one way or another is not guilty of. It is true that the church must always disassociate itself from sin, but the church can never have any excuse for keeping sinners at a distance. If the church becomes self-righteously aloof and avoids sinners and the irreligious, the immoral people, then it really cannot enter justified into God's kingdom. 
So did you hear the story about a man who sinned and was caught publicly doing something immoral? And then he was excommunicated. He prayed to God and cried out, They won't let me in, Lord, because I'm a sinner. God responded by saying, Don't complain. They won't let me in either. After a person accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior, that person's life is not a sinless future. The desire to be sinless may be there, but we will never be sinless. Discipleship is never untarnished. No one lives an upward spiral toward holiness. On occasion, we will get battered and bruised. We will experience loneliness and failure. We will still experience discouragement and uncertainty. And there will be times when we take our eyes off of Jesus. When you accepted Jesus as your Savior, you are set in a right relationship with God. But that was just a beginning. You were not made immune from trouble and sin, but you were given the Holy Spirit, infused with your human spirit. And that means you have a new desire to move forward without sin. God knows us. He created us, after all, and He wants to forgive us. He desires to grant grace to those who want to be present with him, those who want to come to the banquet table. Salvation comes by grace through faith at the throne of God in front of the Lamb. There will be a vast crowd standing in white robes, maybe holding onto palm branches. There, there we will meet some saved sinners that we don't expect. There might be the woman who had turned tricks to buy food to feed her two-year-old child because she couldn't find a job. There might be the businessman whom when he was besieged by enormous debt, he sold his integrity in a desperate business transaction. There might be the abused young man or woman who got caught up in an abusive lifestyle, doing whatever it took to survive that day, falling asleep each night on the street, still whispering the name of Jesus. How can that be? As the Apostle Paul wrote, some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Before the throne, there will be many believers who so wanted to be faithful, but who at times got defeated, soiled by life, beaten down by difficult circumstances, but through it all, through this life, as we make plans and life gets in the way, we cling to our faith. And that is good news. 
the good news of the gospel of grace because grace has called you out. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, 